Mic check. One, two, one, two. Mic check, mic check. Welcome to the Mogul Podcast. I'm Tim Bryson, Director of Athlete Education and Compliance, and I'm the host of our show. If this is your first time here, welcome. If you're a returning community member, welcome back. As y'all know, the Mogul Podcast is dedicated to educating all NIL athletes and brands on how to ensure compliance, how to maximize NIL activity, and how to make a difference in their ever-evolving NIL landscape. If you've seen the guest list of this season so far, we've been very purposeful, um, including guests from different backgrounds, both racial, racially, gender, uh, expertise, etc. Um, and this guest is going to provide a unique perspective, uh, a much-needed perspective to the NIL space, similar to our last few guests, uh, really discussing the uh, intersection between NIL and mental health wellness. Uh, this guest is a PG County native, a former college athlete, uh, someone who is committed to marrying the intersections of both social work and college sport. Um, but all in all, great guy, future Dr. Victor Kid, excuse me, current Dr. Victor D. Kid, welcome to the Mogul Podcast. For sure, man. Thank you. Thank you for uh, having me. Um, I've been a distant admirer, man, for some time and was able to finally meet you out in Vegas, out in uh, yeah. M4A. So that was really cool. And uh, I've gotten really close with Chad, so he speaks really highly of you. So, oh, um, you know, it's it's good to to be able to support you and be be on the podcast. Man, I appreciate it, dog. And first and foremost, excuse my error on future. I know black don't crack, and I don't know if you use uh, African uh, shade voice. Uh, <laughs> but, but but it looks nah, really good, all, bro. It's all good, bro. It's all good, man. The the, uh, the face routine is is strong, man. You know, I do believe in a good skin routine, so. But uh, nah, it's all good. It's all good. I appreciate it, homie. But like I said, man, I mean, this podcast episode is one that I think people have discussed in their own bubbles, if you will, right? Their own arenas. Mm -hmm. um, but has not really, at least in my, my perspective, our perspective, really brought to light in a way that is honest, um, mm -hmm. in a way that is relevant, um, in a way that truly centers particularly Black male experiences uh, with mental health and, and the NIL space as well. But before mm -hmm. we jump into that segment one, I love this segment and all the podcasts. Dr. Kidd, man, what's your story? Oh, man, it's uh, it's kind of interesting, man. You know, I grew up um, kind of uh, split between, uh, you know, the D.C., P.G. County. I'm from Disher Heights, but my father lived in Northeast, and I went to school in the city, so, uh, in Washington, D.C., so, you know, kind of grew up, you know, uh, with, a, with, a, with a very strong uh, family. You know, my mom was very uh present you know and uh, my little brother um but yeah man it, it's it's my story is you know I come from a really close-knit community you know where I grew up at um and uh I would go on I didn't grow up playing football but I grew up playing baseball and basketball but I would go on going into high school right before high school starting to kind of get my feet wet with football and uh, really benefited me um, a lot. Um, I went to Archbishop Carroll High School, which is uh, in Northeast. Uh, we play, uh, you, you spent some time in University of Maryland, but we play the Matha, who's right down the street mm -hmm. from, from you all. We play in the same conference. Um, and so I grew up playing football there at, at uh, Archbishop Carroll. And then I played my college ball at uh, Virginia State University. Yep. And which is a small historically black college D2 school down in uh, right outside of Richmond, Virginia. And there um, I had a blast, I had a ball, started linebacker, played linebacker for a couple of years there. And then, um, yeah, man, that's when life really started getting interesting. So I had got an opportunity 
to go to Howard University to earn my master's in, in social work with a focus on, my, on clinical training, which is funny because at the time when I very first started, I wanted to be a geriatric social worker because my father had a few ailments. He had a stroke. He had all these different things. And I could kind of see how he had kind of deteriorated over the years. So geriatric social work was something I was interested in. Uh, but I guess God had different plans <laughs> because uh, my first internship in the program, the lady, she must have communicated to Howard that she was not going to be supervising any interns. And Howard had just assumed, I guess, that, you know, she had communicating things. She was still open for interns. Yeah. And um, excuse me. And the lady never showed up to like my orientation and stuff. So so Howard found me another internship where I started working with guys coming home from jail. So in D.C., we call it my reentry population. And that was really, really cool. I started to learn about different challenges that black men uh, experience coming home from from being incarcerated and things like that. And uh, I thought that's what I was going to be doing at the time. The new Jim Crow was hot. The book by Michelle Alexander, that was on fire. Trayvon Martin had just happened. I think Mike Brown was happening. And uh, I thought I was going to like really be championing, you know, reentry policy and stuff like that. And then I learned, um, I learned about that I could be at the time. I didn't know that I could get. I, I knew it was a clinical track in social work, but didn't really think about it. Because see, I originally went back to school just because I really didn't know what else I was going to do. You know, I just, yeah. I was just like, well, yeah. I, I can just go back to school and kind of figure it out. Mm -hmm. And uh, I learned that um, a bulk of my education, particularly going into my second year of the master's, would be could be very clinically intense. Mm -hmm. So I went that track. I started learning about uh, all types of things, man, you know, clinical intervention, psychopathology, all that type of stuff. And I started working with guys coming home from incarceration, but that were dealing with substance or what we call co-occurring disorder, substance and a mental health diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And so I fell in love with that. I was doing groups. I was doing individuals. I was working with interdisciplinary teams. And my mom always thought I was going to be a lawyer, but this was like perfect because I get to <laughs> talk a lot and, and things like that. And so, uh, man, I just hit the ground running, man. After that, I had uh, a colleague, I mean, a mentor. And he it told me that I was kind of smart enough to go get a PhD. He said, I think you can do it. He said, I've had a lot of interns, uh, but they're not necessarily sharp like 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 you. So I, I didn't know what I would, you know, the, the master's was like enough. You know, I didn't know necessarily mm -hmm. what I wanted to do with the PhD. I get the PhD, man. I get into a PhD program down in South Carolina. Uh, I originally wanted to, uh, I originally was going to apply to the social work department at South Carolina. And the dean at the time told me she had a colleague in sport and entertainment management that could utilize a, a student such as myself. And I also, she didn't tell me this, but she was going to be leaving, you know, shortly after mm -hmm. I talked to her anyway. So I think she probably did me a solid, like, you know, I'm going to be gone anyway. So. Yeah. And the day, because the day had a, a unique interest in sport and social work. She had a unique, you know, which is interesting for a dean to have, yep. you know, that type of interest. And sport and social work was really in its infancy then, really. It was just, I think, the lives of social workers in sport had just been created you know, maybe in 2014, 15. So it yeah. wasn't, it wasn't like, you know, merging your social work practice and sport wasn't something that um, was really talked about. 
So fast forward, man, I get into the sport and entertainment management program at the University of South Carolina. I'm the first black graduate from that program. And uh, something that was beautiful that came out of that, I was able to focus on athlete career transition, af athlete identity, and how some of those challenges impact individuals from a behavioral health standpoint, and also just kind of transitioning through life. So it was cool, man. You know, I went to Columbia, South Carolina, some very trying times. Um, it was very interesting. I moved there four months after Charleston 9, and um, after the flag was taken off the state steps, and then two months before Trump was elected. So it was it was tough as a black student, especially coming from DC where it's nothing but blackness. You know, it was mm -hmm. nothing. It was, it was like a polar opposite, and they're coming from uh, historically black institutions. You know, that was going to South Carolina was kind of a culture shock all around. But it was one that I think I needed, um, and uh, I think I'm better for it. So yeah, man. So fast forward, finished with the PhD. I'm still trying to get my niche. I interview for jobs, and then I finally get my break. Um, working with sport organizations. My first break was with the Brooklyn Nets, and then I started working with the NBA, still supporting the NBA today. Um, you know, different uh, other other uh, entertainment, uh, Warner Music, Universal Music Group, different um, clients that I've had and that I have. And, and, and now it's kind of grown into this culmination with this new role that I'll be taking with Major League Soccer. So, um, in a nutshell, it, it informed my ability to be a therapist and work with athletes and entertainers. So in private practice, I maybe have like 17 athletes and entertainers that I work with. So that's that's cool, man. You know, youth, um, high school, college, uh, professional and retired. So um, really, really love, you know, what I do. And that's how it all has come together. You know, some people think I'm a sports psychologist, but I'm really a sports social worker, a sports clinical social worker. Um, and, uh, it's, it's important for me to make that delineation because we, we have two different types of scopes. Mm, that's good stuff. And this is going to lead us uh, straight into the uh, segment too, because first and foremost, yes, it's an NIL education podcast, which is great, but there are also people who will listen to this podcast, either athletes, coaches, administrators, friends, family, who may not know the difference between a sports social worker and a sports uh, psychologist. So before we even get into the NIL space, uh, for those who may not know, including myself, what is the you know delineating difference? So a big difference, sports psychologists, you know, they do really well with performance. Um, they are really trained in, uh, you know, performance-based type of things, how to get more, how to get more juice out the lemon, per se. Um, mm -hmm. Not saying that they can't do the mental health stuff or mental health and wellness stuff, uh, but they have, a, they have a, a, you know, a, a very singular training mm -hmm. in that performance piece that I don't think some sports social workers try to say they, you know, can do performance, but I, I, I'm not the type of person that, um, you know, appropriates anything, you know, like that is a big part of what they do, how to get individuals to perform better. Uh, with sports social work, we use more so of a biopsychosocial lens to impact wellness um, and particularly just this population and, and, and athletes. So something that I like to say is that where performance is an ideal that, sports psychologists have, I feel I feel if you are a sports social worker, you believe that performance is a byproduct of wellness. So that's really more so the, the, the switch. Wellness is prioritized. And not saying that sports psychologists don't do that, but for my landscape, I, for my for my vantage point, I want to focus on prioritizing the wellness and then using the wellness to to facilitate, you know, a more aligned, you know, uh, approach with increasing performance. 
Yeah, I think I think my, my my premise is is that if you're an athlete, um, performance is something that you know, right? A lot of times the athletes that I work with perform having wellness to go with that is typically missing. It's missing. No, this is good. It's perfect alignment actually. Because given that you said biopsychosocial lens, is that accurate? Mm-hmm. Y'all don't yeah. know what that means, but I'll look it up later. <laughs> um, but given this NIL space, right? Again, people are focused on the performance part of it, right? The monetization, mm-hmm. the follower mm-hmm. count, um, uh, value. Like, what's the value mm-hmm. of someone's mm-hmm. profile? And we mm-hmm. haven't centered this wellness piece, which is where you sit, right? This biopsychosocial yeah. lens. So, yeah. given that, given that, given what you do, and then given what we've observed the last mm-hmm. eighteen months, especially as someone like yourself as a former college athlete. Like, what are you seeing, right? What are you observing? Before I ask some follow-up questions, I would yeah. to that as well. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. I'm really close to a guy named Luke uh, Philham, who um, mm. has a company. They do a lot of NIL education. So we, we have these conversations pretty often. Um, something that, you know, to use kind of what I was talking about, you know, a buddy of mine who's a sports psychologist, he may come in and say, hey, look, you know, I'm going to work with you on maintaining the performance that you need to maintain these different, you know, opportunities that you have. And I'm someone who may be on the margins, who may be focusing on, is, are you experiencing any microaggressions due to uh, due to NIL on your team? Mm-hmm. How is that impacting you emotionally? If you come from a smaller town, does your family, friends, is there a potential space for extortion back in your hometown? Like a lot of our athletes come from very small, particularly on the collegiate level, comes from very small um, uh, secluded areas in our country, right? Like, you know, we just see this triple shooting that happened this morning at uh, the University of Virginia uh, with three of their, their athletes. It's going to be kind of interesting to see as that story comes out. But, you know, just imagine, you know, being someone who's been, you know, identified as being a seven-figure NIO uh, recipient or, or earner uh, and how that puts a different type of, you know, light on yourself as far as pressure, security, right, and also interactions with, with your family. And I think we, we it hasn't necessarily everyone, like, you know, if you make a seven, seven figures, you're kind of outside of the bell curve right now, right? The data suggests that yeah. that's, not, that's not necessarily, you know, very common. But as this thing grows and as we get out of year two, I think is what we're in right now, once we get out of year two and it really explodes and companies and organizations, everybody figures out how to really blow this up. This could be an area of concern. Um, in regards, and, and I don't know the, I don't know what the legislation is around it, but particularly, you know, if you start seeing clauses where money can be taken away because someone who was touted to be a first string, whatever, is like third string or red shirt or hurt, right? So, so I think nil. I think it's, when we have these conversations, almost it's like looking at NIL in a singular fashion, but it really just kind of exacerbates or kind of blows up all the other challenges that could potentially be present for today's athlete, particularly on the collegiate level. Um, And and that's where, you know, you just add more, okay, I got to have pressure to do this before, do that, do this, do this. And now I got to make sure that I do even more because now I'm a brand. I've taken some money. I've, you know, signed this contract. And so I got to even have this even more. And I think it can be a lot for 18, 19 year old, 20 year old person. Um, and we have to be kind of realistic with that. So I would love to see a lot more NIO education. I read some of this. Somebody was supposed to be trying to do NIO education on the high school level. 
which mm-hmm. I think might be kind of beneficial to kind of circumvent some of that expectations around. Because uh, I think everybody's so excited at, at, at NIL and with, with good reason to be excited. But once that excitement dwindles down, what, you know, and the reality hits, okay, this is what needs to be done for me to maintain all of this. And what does that look like? So I wanted you to get, so I wanted you to have you on, man. So I wanted to have you <laughs> on. But I feel like, again, people have been saying that in different ways, but I think hearing it from someone who's mm-hmm. having more private, obviously confidential conversations with mm-hmm. athletes, entertainers across a number of different mm-hmm. sports, or mm-hmm. across the spectrum, if you will, mm-hmm. how do we, to Trayvon's point, really manage the excitement to be better coming out of this? Now, mm-hmm. I think part of what you said before is not just, uh, you know, the management piece or really mm-hmm. wrapping our hands around it, but also being curious and asking questions. And so for me, is I'm, like, what I'm curious to learn more about is what types of questions could administrators be asking ourselves and each other to better mm-hmm. prepare particularly these college athletes? But then on the flip mm-hmm. side of that, and I let you choose which one you want to answer, uh, what questions could college recruits, prospective college athletes, be asking these departments as they're coming in um, to these to these units, understand they could monetize their name, image, and likeness as well? Yeah, you know, that's, that's really, it's always difficult because now with NIL, We've intro, we've we've kind of introduced a duality in roles in mm-hmm. in in uh, college athletics, right? So like we see naturally that you know playing sports has been very uh, based in paternalism, right? Family, team, you know, a lot of narratives. The black football player who doesn't have a dad. The coach at the university comes that father figure, mm-hmm. even just with like. T- like terms and things like that on shirts, family, we all we got, we're all in, all these different things. So now when you introduce NIL, right, like for instance, this would have been a nightmare if NIL came out a year before, right? Because John mm-hmm. Morant possibly could have made more money than his head coach. So now am I family or is this kind of a business relationship, right? Mm-hmm. So I think, I think the first thing is, you know, you know, what we have to do is have a philosophical shift of understanding and not necessarily romanticizing this, but understanding what the relationship is between college athletics and today's uh, college athlete, right? Um, Because college athletes are probably getting recruited under that same guise of paternalism, right? Like family, you know, we're on one accord, things like that. We all we got, we're locked in. And it could change, the microaggressions can change once an athlete is getting is monetizing and getting his NIL or, or or their NIL deals, and then maybe they focus. You know, hey, coach, mm-hmm. I can't meet make this meeting. I got to do this. I have this obligation. Or now, what what does it turn to? Does it turn to more of a worker, uh, you know, boss type of dynamic? Like it's 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 interesting. So I think college I think college athletic departments have to ask themselves and ask other individuals. How do we, one, make this an equitable space for athletes to have the autonomy, to truly have the autonomy that NIL is supposed to give them, right? This is not just about money. It's about autonomy. It's about you have control to, over your branding, over your narrative. And, and, and I, think, I think, to be honest with you, I think for a system that has been operating totally different for so many years, this is going to be really difficult. This is going to be really Something that was really interesting to me was when um, this popped off, you know, a lot of coaches were starting to have some, start saying microaggressions, you know, in, in different in different interviews, you know, 
Well, Coach so and so, how do you feel about? It? Well, they better understand the tax code. You know, it's kind of like now, all of a sudden, it's not. This is my kid. This is my. This is this is this. We're a family. It's like well, they better understand the tax code, and it's kind of like, uh, you know, like it mm-hmm. goes to just kind of complexity. I think as far as recruits, they need to. They need to one. Uh, any parent needs to understand the, the reality of getting recruited in the reality of NIL. And, and I think a few things, recruits need to be realistic with, with themselves, right? You have some athletes, they're like, you know, maybe two-star athletes, or okay, and, they, and they worry about NIL deals at like the College of Charleston. It's like, mm-hmm. you, you know, like mm-hmm. you go to the College of Charleston to play ball, but, you know, like, kind of temper your expectations as far as NIL deals. So I think first thing, the recruit has to have some expectation of what that looks like, right? And um, furthermore, I think recruits have to ask, okay, how, along with this these NIL opportunities, what resources do you have for me to become a better business person, for me to understand uh, the intricacies of business? Um, are there any supports, you know, within the athletic department that kind of helps with if I'm navigating this, and then and then I'll, obviously I'm biased, but advocating for the practitioners, the mental health practitioners uh, that are in, embedded in college athletics to maybe get some psychoeducation around what NIL means and its and its connection to behavioral health, right? Because if I I can you know if I'm someone who if I'm a big time athlete and say you know I do have a substance issue, right? Access to this large NIL money could, you know, make that more accessible for me, right? So it's really, it's really difficult going back to this duality of both, of both spaces. So NIL makes it very complex, but I think what, what, what recruits and what, what future uh, college athletes have to start asking is what resources are put into place um, to support me. Things that are within their, uh, within their reach, you know, uh, within, within their control, you know, you can't control how a coach may respond to, you can't control how teammate may one thing that was really scary to me was kind of like the freshman the superstar freshman who comes in and like the red shirt senior who's been been clamoring to get a shot and then superstar freshman comes in the locker room and he walks in or, or they walk in or she walks in with a six seven figure nil deal i, I could imagine that person pocket watching a little bit i mean i've been in the college locker room so i know you know <laughs> i mean i've seen guys fight over talking to the same girl, I can only imagine, you know, something else. So it's, 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 it's really, it's really interesting. I, I, I can tell you this, I would not want to be a coach right now mm. in college athletics, uh, particularly in revenue generating sports. That's real. I think what you I mean, what you're saying right now is not even just the tempering expectations, but getting to a place, particularly within this business. And we know business can be funny a lot of the times, but how do we be honest? about what's happening right, right now and transparent right. about what's happening right now because shout out to cfc the cougars we love you too but you're right though every deal is not created equal right like it <laughs> it's just not but to your point there are people coming in looking at whether it's the five stars and pick with any sport and saying i can do that too and again you can in your own way but i think we need to be more honest about what we're seeing what we're experiencing what expectations are and allow people to manage their expectations and walk in that whatever over there three, four, and, five. And, and Tim, it's it's it's, it's uh, you bring up a valid point because you know I've worked with uh a few youth high school basketball players and like they're good, right? But it's like the pressure that they put on themselves 
I had a bad game here. I didn't get invited to Peach Jam. I'm not going to get this deal. This might impact my NIL on the next one. Like, it's it's just like for a 15 or 16-year-old, it's really intense. It takes them mm-hmm. away from actually just being, you know, a human being, right? Yep. And, and yep. then they come see me and they're like, well, I'm depressed. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, your focus isn't necessarily. You know, football for me growing up was like a getaway. Sure. You know, it was like. I could go on the field at four o'clock at the study hall, four days out of the week, and then on Saturdays and just kind of, you know, you know, rip somebody's head off and just have fun. And but now it's kind of like it's no longer a safe haven. It's like you do something on the field, you do something on the court, you come off that playing field, you come off that court, you go to your phone, you get access to somebody live ranking you from what you did on the court. That impacting you, that you know, it's just kind of like it, it's not fun anymore. You know, I'm a, I'm a big advocate for parents to incorporate, you know, obviously competitive sport, but a lot of play and the play part is just no longer there. That's well said. That's well said. Before we uh, go on to the last segment, as you worked with NBA, you worked obviously starting with the MLS very soon, but you work you work with professional athletes in different contexts. Is there anything that college sport could and should be taken away as a model, an example from the professional realm? Uh, to implement and really execute at the college level. Oh man, that's a, I've never thought about that. I think um, this goes back to that particular piece around uh, autonomy, right? Like you know, pro sports. You know, they, you know, uh, the, the players are their, the athletes are their own brand. You know, and it's a lot of separation between the NBA and LeBron James. Like LeBron James is his own. And so I think there needs to be, you know, maybe a model of some individuation for a lot of, because like even with with the college athletes, like like Caleb Williams, he he got a lot of NIL deals, but I never see I never see anything. I never see. <laughs> so I think you know I don't see a commercial. I don't see. So I think once again because this is such in this infancy, I think that college sport may look at how do we, you know, they may look at it from themselves. How can we uplift these particular individuals that's, you know, getting these NIL deals and kind yeah. of putting them on a pedestal? Like the NBA does a really good job of you knowing from a national or even international landscape who their top players are. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, you know, mm-hmm. so I think I think college sport could could utilize that, you know, in regards to um, how they move forward and how they, you know, how they kind of allow um you know, college athletes or give them give them more more spaces to be able to uplift what they're doing. It's good, yeah. I mean, I think it's all just we're in a crash course to the NCAA <laughs> not existing what it is now. Yeah. I mean, that's just that's just what it is. Yeah. You know, given yeah. a lot of the change, but I think now to your, your point, our point earlier, we can't hide from it now. Yeah, like we yeah. got to be honest. At least for me, I'm just like, at what point can we just be honest about what's happening so we can we can make decisions based on that yeah. and not act yeah. like we not. Um, which is good stuff. But segment three, bro, three things you want our audience to remember and leave with after our conversation together. I can tell you off rip. Uh, the duality and roles, that's mm-hmm. good. That might be the clip. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the autonomy's huge. But three things from your perspective, your, you know, your lens that you want to take away from this conversation together. Yeah, I, I think we all need to have patience with how NIL shakes out. That's the first thing I think we need to. I think it's been a, a mad rush for everybody to try to get their hat in the ring with NIL. And, and, and we haven't really discussed how, how a lot of college athletes are being taken advantage of with that, right? That's not really being, you know, that will come out as this thing grows, but, you know, a lot of, a lot of us have not considered that, you know, it's great 
but who gets taken advantage of or who who kind of you know for lack of a better term the shit slow slows down creek who who mm-hmm. who, who gets that so mm-hmm. i think we need to have patience with that um uh, too nil brings a different level of behavioral health challenges right and um you know it's the old saying that you know money doesn't necessarily buy you everything and and if and if we have athletes that are coming to the universities with with bad coping mechanisms money just makes you more of who you are so you you know we may be you know creating a monster where they have not only more access but you know more autonomy to utilize those negative coping mechanisms you know if they don't have necessarily the right behavioral health support and training at the like look you know 18 19 with a million dollars me oh man i wouldn't even want to know (laughs) so so um you know just really really actually becoming uh more you know nil competent from a behavioral health standpoint and how they both um kind of you know are intertwined and i guess the third would be um you know as we come out of 2022 um, I would be remiss as we go into 2023, uh, how our lives have continuously changed and how the athlete's life has continuously changed. And though we are etching closer and closer to normalcy, uh, that in 2023, you know, we need to be, well, 2022, we need to be re- really reflective of how far we've come as, as, as a community, as a world. Um, mm-hmm. March, in D.C., March 16, 2023 would be three years uh, since uh, the shutdown from the, from COVID nineteen, and so I think that we really need to still be cognizant of how this has impacted college sport and impacted individuals who are doing a lot of the great stuff in college sport, which are the athletes. That's so wild. I even think about three years. Yeah, that's that's yeah. flown. <laughs> yeah, like man. that's actually flown, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and and it's and it's uh, uh, and when it first happened, we had this big assumption that everybody had the resources and everything to shut down and go virtual. True. And some, and, and maybe a vast majority of us had those resources, but a lot of us did not have those resources and did not have the emotional capacity to, to, for that transition. And a lot of us are really anxious and don't have the emotional capacity to transition out of that. Our lives. Mm-hmm. This isn't necessarily. This wasn't like a work lifestyle change. This was a lifestyle change. And I'm seeing with a lot of clients, a lot of angst and anxiety around getting closer to normalcy, right? And mm-hmm. what that looks like. And so if, if the general public is feeling like that, you best believe uh, athlete, college athlete pub, uh, populations feel like that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially international, app. I know you do a lot of work with the international mm-hmm. piece. This brings a whole different, you know, scope. I have an international college athlete that I work with. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when you think about visas, traveling, mm-hmm. that just made that even more complicated, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, I think she might have went like two calendar years without seeing her parents or something like that. So, um, you know, it's, it's just just keep that in mind as we continue to get closer to 2023. <laughs> Dr. Kid, DMV native. Yeah. Hey, I need to do like a pod season, maybe walk with TAB on like this private Catholic high school black kid experience. Uh, That's his own man. It's a, play, play, it's a trend. <laughs> and it's but it's big and, and back home it's it's one of those deals where you play to go to the private leagues. You know, True. so you you get you get you get introduced to you know this recruiting thing that we're talking about. 
you get introduced to that at 12, 13 years old. You get introduced to NIL like behavior at, at, at 11, 12, 13 years old. So it was the Washington Catholic Athletic Conference is a great conference, it's a very unique conference, and it provides some very unique opportunities for some of the best players in the area. That's real. No, super real. I'm a product as well. So I get it. I'm a, I'm a to my victim and a and a survivor of that of that experience yeah. and that system. Yeah. But Big kid, man, I'm going to include all your socials in the description to this podcast sure. episode. Uh, it's definitely only the first of many uh, future conversations that we'll continue to have yeah. about not just the present, but also the future of uh, not just college sport, but sport and mental health, sport and social yeah. work um, yeah. at its whole. But I appreciate cool. you, dog. Cool, cool. All right, man. That's too easy. Everybody else, man, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Get Mogul Podcast. Look forward to having more conversations to help our athletes and educating all NIL athletes and brands on how to ensure compliance, how to maximize their NIL activity, and how to make a difference in the ever-evolving NIL landscape. As always, until then, get mogul.